Welcome to High Noon, where we talk about controversial issues with interesting people. Um, and as as I've noted many times, I'm just sort of circulating this idea uh, until it becomes the default. Uh, we are moving to a slightly different format here, where we just discuss um, news and interesting items, um, not not daily news necessarily, but interesting items of the week with a series of co-hosts. Um, the latest in this line of co-hosts uh, is Mary Margaret Olihan. She is a senior reporter with the Daily Signal over at the Heritage Foundation. Um, she's also a fellow with us at IW, and um, she's done a lot of great reporting. Um, you've probably seen some of her viral stories in, in the last few years, um, but I, I'm really pleased to have her on High Noon today to discuss some of the things that are in the news. So, I think um, we should maybe kick it off with something that is, I, I think, uh, a sort of growing presence. Um, we've talked a lot on this show uh, about sort of the, the general cast of the conflict in the Middle East. Um, we've talked about the horrific attacks on Israel, and we've talked about some of the, the response at home in universities, for example. Um, but in this past week, I have sensed a shift in the protests, and I'm wondering if, if uh, you feel it too. It seems like it's becoming something that's more broadly, like the sort of general leftist street protest, um, the playbook that we saw in, in 2020. And my evidence for that is one that we're seeing, and we saw in the past week, the attacks on statues of American heroes, once again. So statues in DC defaced. Um, we're seeing, you know, the same kind of low level uh, at times, uh, but nevertheless worrying violence, for example, in D.C., breaking rules about, you know, scaling the White House walls. Uh, of course, you know, obviously, if, if it had been a right wing protest, then we would expect the book to be thrown at these people. Um, but we have little hope that that's going to happen. And then finally, out in L.A., uh, there is this this horrible case um, of, of this man, Kessler. Um, who, unfortunately, he's 65, he was hit in the head by a pro-Palestinian demonstrator. He was a pro-Israel um, supporter who was also out there exercising his First Amendment right. He was hit over the head with a megaphone. He fell onto the ground and he ended up bleeding from his, his uh, brain and he died. Um, so that is homicide uh, by most standards and most state standards. Um, so what do you make of, of all of this? I mean, uh, obviously, you know, Obviously, we, we've talked quite a bit, and I'm sure you have thought about this as well over at Heritage, about the connections between sort of our domestic left and this pro-Hamas sentiment and how those two things fit together. But this almost seems to have transcended the specific conflict of the Middle East, because now it seems to me that the targets are all the typical things we hear from the hard left, right, about America itself being a colonialist power and an occupier about, you know, um, going after American heroes and, and decrying them as genocidal maniacs, right? Um, this all starts to sound much less specific to the conflict in the Middle East and much more the the generic anti-American street protest and violence that we saw in 2020. No, I totally agree with you, Nez. And I, I was thinking about this as I was writing about, um, it was BLM support for the attack on October 7th, which, you know, we're backtracking a little bit here, right? Where we had BLM Chicago, BLM, uh, a bunch of different BLM affiliates come out and express support for the attacks. 
And then we saw a whole slew of student protests and just more tame protests. And now we're entering this era of maybe uh, violence-laced protests or just at the very bare minimum, much more aggressive protests. But these initial statements blew my mind with the way that they aligned the BLM cause with the Hamas attacks. There was there there was a reference to, and I've heard this at different protests. Uh, you know, we're called terrorists, but we know who the real terrorists are. Uh, you know, our land has been taken from us. We've been treated badly. It, it's an alignment with the same uh, messaging, and so it doesn't surprise me now that we're seeing more this shift in this way because. Um, <laughs> that's the sentiment that was being expressed, even if people weren't necessarily carrying the banner at the beginning of this about a month ago. And it has been actually specifically a month now uh, since the initial attack. And I wasn't able to be at the protests in D.C. over the weekend or the demonstration, whatever we want to call it here. Uh, peaceful protest. It's passionate. <laughs> uh, it, it's the new most peaceful. It's passionate protest. Passionate protest. I missed it. Uh, but I, I've been at a lot of student protests and an interesting vibe that I've picked up on that. I don't know if I've written about this just because it's not necessarily like so solid fact is, uh, you know, the organizers will say, and typically student organizers, they'll say, we already decided what messaging the media is taking away from this. So I'm thinking specifically of the protests I went to at the Israeli embassy where there were a lot of adults and students. And then the protests that I went to at GMU. George Mason University in Fairfax. And the leaders will say, we already decided what messaging the media is taking away from this. So don't defer, don't deter from that. Stick with our messaging. And at both protests, we noticed, my colleagues and I, that there'd be a group of guys, you know, it's much more like you got your typical skinny college students, and then you have these more kind of uh, muscular looking men that are wearing the, I think it's called a kefra, the, the black and white. Yeah. Uh, headdress yeah. and they you yeah. know if they were antagonized at all or if they felt called upon they would start saying alu akbar and the organizers would shut it down and i found this really interesting because you know they got their typical chants from the river to the sea palestine will soon be free uh they've got a couple other ones free free palestine but the alu akbar no they didn't want that and uh this weekend in the coverage I saw that a lot. I saw a lot more um, boldness and confidence in kind of coming out and, and saying this phrase that wasn't welcome at the other protests, because we all know that that scares people and, and it, it, it aligns with a more of a, um, for lack of a better word, for more of a, a terrorist ideal than we want to hear from. Yeah, it's, it's interesting because I was listening to that in the chants as well. In the protests in front of the White House, they were yelling over and over again, Allah Akbar, right? And it struck me that in 2002, of course, if you yelled Allah Akbar uh, at the front of the White House gates and started to climb the gates, you would probably catch a sniper bullet. Um, but now it is, as you say, has has moved um, into part of this alliance of the left in a way that's that's much more comfortable. But frankly, you know, inevitable if you look at uh you know the writings of judith butler or any of these sort of new left sentiment even if you go back to um you know sart uh sart versus uh Camille, right like th there has been this long-term um alliance between the the hard left and and um the what they would call colonial 
uh, resistance, right? Which, which I think that tweet at the um, right after October seventh actually got to the heart of really well. Where the the professor, I can't remember from what school, um, she was like, "Well, what what did you think decolonialism looked like? You know, did you think it yes. was writing essays? Um, no, you know, when you violently displace, uh, you know, quote unquote colonial powers." Um, there's, there's, it's going to be ugly. It's not going to be like a seminar. Um, but there, there has been this long understanding. And I think it's an obvious one, which is that they have the same enemies. Um, and it, it almost doesn't matter for these purposes, whether you're talking about Israel or Jews or America, the West broadly, um, all of these, these people and entities slot into the same oppressor oppressed construct um, whereby, and, and you see it applied domestically in the United States in the criminal context, whereby if you are, you know, if you're a quote person of color, if your, you know, skin is darker, um, and, and you commit violence, then it must be a construct of, of, uh, you're rising against oppression in some way and therefore excusable. Whereas if, if there's any violence going the opposite direction, in other words, the small number of murders, for example, that are white on black in this country garner huge and disproportionate media attention, whereas, you know, black on black murders don't garner any at all. Right. Um, and and similarly, right, like black on white murders garner very very little media attention. Um, it's that same outsized coverage based on the underlying notion that if you are, uh, you know, brown and therefore quote unquote more oppressed, any kind of action of yours is not only excusable, it's laudable, it's placed in a political context of resistance or anti-colonialism or whatever else. Um, and that's exactly what happened after October seventh, right? It, it's even before Israel did a single thing to retaliate when they were still dealing with literal Hamas terrorists within the borders, even within the green line of Israel, the like original borders um, of Israel, it was automatically assumed to be illegitimate, right? Any response to that was automatically assumed to be illegitimate while the actions, even the incredibly barbaric actions of Hamas terrorists in Israel were presumed to be an outgrowth of resistance and therefore legitimate. Um, look, I haven't talked to a single one of these people, frankly, even the more moderate ones um, who did not, when asked, agree that America is the same in the same illegitimate, like morally illegitimate position. I mean, you've been at these protests. What did you did you did you ask any of them like what the status of America is in terms of of you know sitting on Indian land or, or, or whatever else, what is the status of America as an occupier? I mean, I didn't specifically ask them that um, because when we were there, we were asking, we were really interested in asking people whether they condemned Hamas because um, a lot of the protests I went to were really close to the attack and these nobody wanted to say anything about Hamas. You didn't hear a single, you never heard that word Hamas, um, which I found wild and we try and ask the students, do you support Hamas? Why are you guys talking about the murders and the, in the attack? You, you, are you referencing the Hamas fighters that murdered and raped and slaughtered all these people? And they wouldn't acknowledge that. But um, I will say they, many of these college students are, and, and the adults that were at the protest, they are carrying signs or signage or some of their messaging conflates a lot of these issues in the way that you would expect. So, uh, for example, the megaphone of one of these student leaders had uh, Queers for Palestine on it. 
um, a lot of that kind of messaging. Um, and I, I did see signs with uh, references to indigenous people's land. Uh, but the disconnect between these, these young people, especially, and the sentiments they're expressing, and then yeah, realities of what's going on over there is so startling. Um, and we even asked people, <laughs> we said, do you realize that uh, your sign says queers for Palestine, but if you had that kind of sign over there, you could be potentially subject to criminal action or you could be in danger for that. Uh, you know, we said it a little more politely than that. And they got really mad at us. They kicked us out. The police had to come in and say, all right, time to go. And, uh, you know, there's no there's no recognition of reality in these instances. And um, I haven't been at a protest where I've seen these more recent ones, and I want to go, but I'm not going to lie to you. It, it makes me nervous, uh, this uh, conflation, because it's different than, uh, you know, it's just, it's different. Like I go to the abortion protests in DC all the time. I go to um, protesting outside the homes of the Supreme Court justices and stuff. I've been peripheral to some of the BLM protests back in 2020. Every, every kind is different. It has a different vibe, different people that attend them. Um, and you can just feel the you can feel the momentum here. Different crowd. It it feels less safe. It feels, uh, it it just feels more on the verge of something, and uh, it scares me. It really does. Yeah, I mean, there is something different that hits different about actually uh, cheering for direct violence that everyone has seen. It's one notch less abstract, I think, than some of the uh, previously endorsed, even though I think it follows very, very well. But you kind of touched upon something that has been bothering me in the conversations about all of this. Um, and and that is, so the response, and even from conservative Republicans, um, has been to, to list off, okay, so why should we Americans stand with Israel? Um, and and in, instead of in my view, touching on some of the deeper things about Western civilization. It's been a litany of policies that I think now are the only thing that we're capable of articulating, right? It's, it's, it's about democracy. It's about, um, who has, who better recognizes gay marriage, right? And, and in what country homosexuals are better treated. Um, and I, it, it strikes me that this is this list of, of sort of freedoms or, or for lack of a better word is, is the only thing that we have to offer. And then it, to me, it really like just highlights how correct, you know, Hwellebeck was to write about basically the soft Islamist uh, scenario in which a soft Islamist party wins, you know, election in, in Europe due to immigration. And everyone jumped down his throat about, you know, oh, like you're, you're, um, What's, what's the Biden administration's favorite word? You're uh, Islamic phobic, right? Uh, when in fact the book the book was about submission was about um, it was about the the lack of a moral claim at the heart of the West anymore, right? Uh, and and the fact that um, that there's not any like we are not asserting any kind of moral goodness of our civilization and to the extent that we're able to do that it's not things like you know uh that we are have the traditional liberties of um of american citizens not that we live under a continuous constitution that restrains the action of government and not that and crucially not that that we are 
a good and moral people um, who live uprightly without the restraint of government, without like that real experiment in in ordered liberty, where we can have a civilization um, that that makes a claim about moral truth, um, that we are like good in this way, because either our connection with Christianity, that's off the, the table completely, right? Uh, uh, the country's connection with Christianity, um, that that we are simply uh, living in, in a tradition that has granted liberty and prosperity and uh, safety from the, the sort of state of nature of humankind and the barbarism that's inherent to mo- you know, most of human existence, that we have transcended that and lifted ourselves out of it by adhering that we have the rule of law. None of these things are what we're talking about, right? We're talking about things that are, okay, we, we have gay marriage. Like that, that is literally the, the dividing line um, now between quote unquote, you know, Western civilization and barbarism or seventh century, you know, style Comanche raids into, you know, into Israel. It, it just, it, it's, it seems like it's a very depressing state to me of like, we can only articulate ourselves um, and who we are and what we stand for with reference to maybe the last 30 years <clears throat> because suggesting that there's anything special about Americans as a concrete people or that there's anything special about specifically about our history, our heroes, our constitution, you know, um, all of those things, even the right does not reference when, when making these arguments. That's such a good point. And it is incredibly sad that we've gotten to this point where, I mean, to even interact with these kinds of people when they're talking in this way, like, what are you supposed to, how are you supposed to reach them? You know, I, I'll try and say, um, my, you know, my purpose in going to this kind of protest is to show what's going on, right. Or to show um, the sentiments that are being expressed here. But if you can't even reach them with the realities of that kind of thing, and then we already have this separation like you're talking about, it feels so hopeless. Um, but I think that's a really interesting point, and we don't talk about that enough. It, it, it is absolutely true. Um, and I guess this is a good way to, to segue to uh, some of the reporting that you've done about the new speaker, Mike Johnson, um, yeah. and how the media has really treated him as though he's grown an extra head. Um, with everything they sort of dig up about anything he said in the past about his faith, it, it the reporting makes it sound like any expression he's made of his Christian faith is like diff- just sort of predeterminately crazy, right? There is a sharp contrast, by the way, between the tolerance of Allah Akbar, right, and and <laughs> the the ability to or the inability to take as just part of the package that this is a speaker whose faith has very much influenced his life. Um, he sees himself and his, his political decisions as um, not identical with his faith, but of course influenced by it as every worldview influences a particularly your moral worldview will influence mm-hmm. the way that you see politics and the world. And there's this presumption that that's illegitimate. Yeah. Uh, there is a it's not just that it's illegitimate it's that it's um it's not allowed and that's what i find so interesting i was i was talking about this this morning i think i was messaging you about it yesterday um the media illiteracy when it comes to religion is so bad um, and it translates to politicians to commentators where 
no one seems to believe that the people who say they are Christian or they're Catholic or they're Jewish or they're Muslim actually believe what their faiths teach. Um, and specifically media, I have noticed it, it's this, it's kind of like a blanket assumption, like, oh, they're this faith. Um, but then there's shock when they actually believe what they say they do. Uh, and I think this is a good example of this is Amy Coney Barrett when she was uh, nominated to Supreme Court. Everyone was shocked that she, as a Catholic, she took certain stances or that she had a big family. Um, There's so much shock there. And the media, the way they reported it was this extreme woman who has all these kids. And, you know, she adopted her two black children because she's a racist. And um, there were the whole the whole fanfare surrounding her nomination centered on her Catholicism and how that might impact her Supreme Court decisions. But then on the other hand, you have Joe Biden. When we talk about his Catholicism, he's a devout Catholic. You know, he, you know, whatever his actual actions and um, <laughs> policy aside, he's a devout Catholic. And that's how CNN refers to him, how the AP and every, every outlet under the sun will call him a devout or practicing Catholic. Uh, and then you get Mike Johnson, who <laughs> wants to protect his son in the age of this degenerate Internet that we face. He gets this covenant eyes. It's a. Um, it's an accountability software, which is really sweet when you actually hear him explain this. Covenant Eyes, where basically you set it up so that it, it tracks your internet usage and it you have an accountability partner. So it tracks both of your internet usage and sends each other a report. And so theoretically, if you're looking at stuff you're not supposed to be looking at, it's going to ping your accountability partner and say, hey, he looked at this today. Um, and Johnson never said that either of them had viewed pornography. He said they have this software to hold each other accountable. And yet the Rolling Stone, I'm trying to remember exactly what their, their phraseology was, but the headline basically said they're tracking each other's porn usage. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I wrote a story about this. I messaged the author. I think his name is Daniel something or other. This, uh, he normally writes entertainment for Rolling Stone. And I said, hey, do you stand by this headline? you realize what it's suggesting? Like, we're going to write a story about this. We're including your name. Can you address whether you stand by it? He never got back to me, but uh, it's just incredible that that is how you would frame this. You know, we have, I don't, I can spare you out my, my rant on pornography, but when we know such negative impacts that it has on young people, especially, and you see a father that wants to help his son to just navigate that, because of their Christian faith, which says that they shouldn't be using it anyways. And then that's how the, the media is going to frame it in this hit, hit piece manner. And this kid has to grow up and have all these stories on the internet about him and his father and pornography. It's just, it's so, it's disgusting. And uh, Johnson, I've seen this on multiple levels with different aspects of his faith. I've seen even conservatives trying to say that uh, he wants, <laughs> his faith teaches that uh, if Israel is obliterated, the end times are coming. So he wants war in the Middle East, um, all kinds of other other attacks in this manner. And uh, it, it, just because the man supports traditional marriage, he stands by his faith. Oh, he must be a radical. It's crazy. Every every time this happens, and it happens every what, like maybe every year or so, some prominent conservative will come into the limelight. They're a strong Catholic, strong Christian, and all of a sudden, all the headlines are Amy Coney Barrett is a handmaid, or Mike Johnson uses son's pornography. Like, what the? <laughs> Sorry, I get I get way too um, way too worked up about all this. 
So it's, it's interesting because like, <laughs> I, I recently ran a, a Twitter poll, which obviously not scientific, um, but I have a lot of Christian followers and uh, I was asking them about, like personally, I, you know, I don't care if American evangelical Christians support Israel because they thought it was the end of the world. But I had heard this claim so many times repeated both by news outlets like the New York Times, but also like in, in my personal life from liberal Jews. And I, I was like wondering how, because I don't care, even if it were true, I wouldn't care. I mean, I don't, I don't care what somebody believes is going to happen at the end of the world. Like, right. um, you know, the, the fact that American evangelical Christians are such good friends to the Jewish people is not something that I'm like going to nitpick in terms of what <laughs> theological considerations they may have for that. I don't care about those things. But I was curious because, you know, I, I have worked with a ton of Christians over the years. I've had conversations about Israel with a ton of Christians over the years, and it's never come up. Like this this supposedly ubiquitous explanation um, about the end of the world and, and um that the Jews have to gather in Israel in the end times. And so I was, I was asking my Christian followers, you know, who, you know, what sect believes in this, you know, what sort of subdivision of Protestantism or evangelicalism um, believes in this. And so there there were some responses that came back overwhelmingly. um, People expressed that the reason that they were uh, supporting Israel were either for, for cultural and secular reasons meaning they saw some alignment between their values um, and the values of America and Israel. Um, The second most popular reason was other biblical reasons. And the most two, the two that I I heard cited the most and have heard cited the most in my like personal interactions with people is one that, you know, the verse from the Bible that says that God will, will bless who blesses the Jews and curse who curses them. Um, And, and then the second one uh, was, a non-specific to a particular verse, but generally the biblical belief that Christianity is a branch, or, or um, you know, that Christianity and Judaism share the same root, and therefore um, that that there is a special relationship, kind of like the U.S. and and, uh, and the U.K. Right? There's a special relationship because they share at their root, um, you know, perhaps the same God, but different interpretations of of what happened after the coming of the Messiah. But there's some kind of um, theological overlap there. And that was the other second most cited thing um, that I heard. So then I heard that, so the, um, my followers were telling me that uh, apparently this view about the end times, the particularities of one equating modern Israel with Israel in the Bible and and in prophecy and um, in revelations is itself a somewhat minority view. But then within that, um, apparently Pastor John Hagee is popular with the Left Behind series, that this is where this particular belief. And there are some people, I want to be, I want to be clear, like there, there are, and there, some of them wrote to me and there are people who believe uh, that the, like the modern Israel is equivalent to the Israel and prophecy and um, that there will be some kind of end of the world base and it will, will happen relatedly to what's happening in Israel. Even those people, they're not like, they don't believe that we're going to, we should start a war in Israel to bring about the end times. They simply believe that, that, there are certain indications that we're headed that way, whether we like it or not. Um, but it was just interesting because this is a ubiquitous. I have heard it so many times and it turns out to be a minority position of an already minority part of, of evangelicalism. And even that is not fairly expressed in the sort of dominant media narrative about this. Right. Right, where you nitpick one little thing that you've heard that sounds more radical and you blow it up to represent the overall sentiment 
in an area to portray it as radical. Um, we see that all the time, all the time. This one in particular, I actually, I interviewed um, Speaker Johnson on his faith about a week ago now. And I was pulling it up while you were talking because I asked him specifically about this because uh, I kept seeing it coming up and I thought, okay, I want to know, you know, is he, is that his stance? Um, and he, he told me that there's obviously a biblical admonition. This is what you were referring to that all Jews and Christians believe. He said, it says clearly in the Bible, I will bless the nation that blesses Israel and curse the nation that curses Israel. So it's pretty black and white in terms of our faith. Um, but then he also said there's stacks of pragmatic reasons in our national interests on why we have to stand with Israel. And <laughs> he explained those to me. Uh, so he said, it's always nice when your faith aligns with pragmatic public policy. That was that was his take on uh, on being a Christian and, and and standing up for Israel in this, this situation. Yeah, I need to have Walter Russell Mead on because he wrote this book that I, I've only like I've listened to him give interviews about but about this sort of historical support um, for Jews and, and then once past 48 for Israel in, in America and among American Christians. Um, but yeah, it, and it is a very interesting topic if it were explored honestly, right? So the, the, right. the explorations are always very dishonest. And I, I've heard from multiple quarters, right? Um, there's the obvious, the one we just talked about, which is reduces it to a particular sort of prophecy of the end times, which the majority even of evangelical Christians don't believe, let alone expanding it out to Protestants and then expanding it out to all Christians in America. Like, again, you're talking about a subdivision, but even that is right. not really fairly expressed, even for that minority uh, who do believe that it's not a fairly expressed sentiment to say, because like right. the, the shorthand I always hear is American Israel need to stand together at the end of the world. And they're waiting for all the Jews to gather in Israel so that, that Jesus can come back, which I think is not an accurate, even what this percentage of Christians believe is not an, a, a um, faithful rendition of their theological commitments. Um, right. But, but even so, like there, there's a very interesting topic but this is so pervasive. I have to tell you, this is such a pervasive view, not just among, you know, the readers of the New York Times, although there's an overlapping, <laughs> a lot of overlap between the uh, two groups that I'm going to say, but among liberal Jews in America, um, that like somehow this Christian support for uh, Jews in Israel, the philo-Semitism of American Christians is like somehow a trick um, that, that it's based on some to them wacky theological considerations and um it, it, it is kind of a tragedy because it, it, i see it as a combination of this kind of misinformation about theology that is spread through ignorance in the new york times and elsewhere but um but also something something deeper i think which is that importing importing a certain posture um that is a result of european experience um and pogroms in Europe over centuries, right? Uh, and, and it is importing it into a country in which it never took place. There has never been a pogrom in America. As far as my history knowledge, and I think is correct, there has never been a pogrom in America. That's not to say that, you know, there weren't, like, any any group, any minority group in America, like, had to sort of fight its way into the mainstream. Um, but... And then there were certainly like quotas and universities and stuff like that. But this is this is all like minor potatoes compared to the fundamental acceptance. I mean, America has been an incredibly safe place and welcoming place for Jews from its inception, starting with, mm -hmm. you know, water, Washington's letters on tolerance right, to the Hebrew congregation. Um, 
it's it, it's an imported history that for for many fascinating reasons of which I don't know, and that's why I would love to. I need to read that Walter Russell Mead book um, instead of just listening to him talk about it. But uh, it is an interesting historical aberration, actually, that that America has been such a safe place and such a welcoming place for Jews for for centuries. Um, and and so uh, anyway, it's just it's it, it the whole thing strikes me as as a, a bit of tragedy uh, that the majority of American Jews are liberal, um, and in part because of their liberal commitments, but also in part of of sort of this mistranslation of various things, um, including cultural mistranslations about appeals to conversion. Uh, like, like there's just this cultural antipathy uh, between and when, when in reality, like these, these are two groups of people um, who, who really should be friends. Uh, it, there is a one-sided hand of friendship, many times one-sided hand of friendship extended uh, from American evangelical Christians and American Christians more broadly, and and not ex- not accepted um, or or feared even uh, by by American Jews who are again who are liberal. Right? Israelis actually don't seem. Most Israelis that I know, they don't they don't have this like soul searching about uh, what it really means that American Christians support them. They just they're like, oh, good. Somebody somebody right. supports us. <laughs> That's so true. <laughs> um, yeah, I just want to say really quickly here. I went on the most amazing trip earlier this year with um, this group called Philos and uh, it was specifically Philos Catholic. And the purpose of it was to kind of bridge the gap between different um, Christian or Catholic groups and uh, Jewish and, and Jewish Americans um, and Israelis. And it was so phenomenal. Uh, they're, they're doing such great work. This was, Philo's Catholic took us to Israel and we, we went um, and just learned so much about uh, Judaism, the culture and Israel, um, the different uh, conflicts that were going on over there. And what I loved about them was they were telling me that in the United States, a lot of the work they do is to extend a hand between Christians and Jews to show them when Jews experience anti-Semitism, they'll send one of their their volunteers or their workers to bring a rose to that community, which is this really beautiful little gesture where they say, basically, hey, we're here, we're with you, we stand with you. Um, and they were telling me about the reception that that gets. They were like, you would not believe just bringing one rose to a family that has graffiti on their home um, or just, you know, a little incident that people would say, oh, that's that's rude, but it's not a big deal. Uh, these little acts of kindness uh, are their way of kind of bridging that gap. And I thought that was so amazing uh, that that they're, that they're making that small effort in that way. Yeah, I mean, that's a very Christian gesture. Uh strikes me and i mean that specifically not as like a sort of generic compliment but it's a very christian gesture and i'm i'm sure it's very appreciated i mean especially in these times um but, but what what do you think accounts for so it it is obviously the hostility of the left to all religious explanation um in terms of the mainstream media but you would think at some point they would merely be embarrassed right like i i'm thinking of all these um Incidents just off the top of my head that I can think of where mainstream media just straight up made mistakes, like religious mistakes about very basic things. So the New mm-hmm. York Times um, during the 2016 election, I remember published something. I think Ted Cruz gave a speech about the body of Christ and the original story um, in the New York Times assumed that they were talking about like an actual body. And he was obviously referring to the congregation. <laughs> Um, and to Christians more broadly in the world, um, 
but like they written, I can't remember exactly how they did, but they had written the story uh, in such a way as as to uh, <laughs> to imply that it was like a, a concrete thing, like they had like a body somewhere <laughs> in the church, and the, the because the and it was obviously like just a, a mere mistake on the part of. Right somebody who had absolutely no experience with an incredibly common phrase. And there are many others. I mean, Molly Hemingway has documented a ton of these. Um, and so, you know, what, what is, what is to be done aside from the general problem and maybe it's inseparable from it, but aside from the general problem of media bias, because this is beyond media bias. This is like media idiocy or, or right, right. real kind of ignorance that as we've just been discussing sometimes really does end up driving a wedge between people uh, who don't know better. And not everyone is familiar with the theology of every, you know, Christian denomination or, or um, for that matter, you know, the, the differences between reform, conservative, Orthodox Jews, like traditional and Israel, like, you know, these, these are things that you only know if, if you're, you know, interact with them in in a direct way, or if you have a particular interest in the theology, but you know, what, what can be done to minimize the, the the mistakes, like the just genuine idiotic mistakes with regard to religion. And why do you think they occur at such a high rate? I mean, we've gone from a country that made biblical reference as, as part of national politics, any major speech in American history basically has heavy biblical reference to the point where, you know, major legacy news outlets do not know what the phrase body of Christ means. Right. No. Well, first of all, those outlets and those reporters need to be held accountable when they do mess up. So I think there's a huge responsibility for the people in the know, as it were, to speak up and say, no, you got that wrong and you need to fix it. Um, And I think that weirdly enough, Twitter has become a huge way that people do that. And I'm really glad to see it. I actually was laughing when you mentioned Molly Hemingway, because I'm pretty sure her husband, Mark, coined some phrase about media illiteracy when it comes to religion. And it's escaping me right now, but it was so good. And and I believe what he was getting at is they're not just um, they're not just being biased, like you were saying. It's that they genuinely don't know anything about religion. And uh, and so where once upon a time someone would hear Ted Cruz refer to the body of Christ and say, okay, well, is he Catholic? Is he Christian? Um, because in different, in, in Catholicism, when you say the body of Christ, you, you might be referring right. to talking your, about communion. It was, right. I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm phrasing it in a way that's less clear in my own, like because I'm remembering something, but it was very clear. He was literally talking about like the congregation. He was right. speaking to a Christian congregation. Um, but yes, I know, I know that also, you know, in Catholicism and frankly, in, in plenty of Protestant denominations, they would also refer to what Catholics would call the Eucharist, right? But whatever, they would refer to com- the, the act of communion as and and right. um, the the bread and, and wine as the body and blood of Christ. Blood that of Christ, yeah. also not, I'm pretty sure, something that the New York Times reporter understood no. because he thought there was a literal, like I don't know what he thought that there's a like a statue because it kind of was he was writing about it as though it was a statue, you know, <laughs> that like somebody was going to carry out a statue. And that was the bottom. It was, it was like extremely bizarre and it didn't, it didn't fit with any of the different denominational interpretations or, or use or common use of that phrase. Right. And and they don't, they, I think they think of it as the people who believe this are believing in some kind of magic. First of all, that it's like, it's like a magical mystical or not mystical, but they think it's bad um, because there's no understanding and there's no respect for it either. 
but I will say it gives me hope that I don't think that most of America is is uh is on the same page in fact we know there's so many religious Americans who would read that and just be so turned off and frustrated by it um that and that that gives me hope because um I I do think we get immersed in the media bubble sometimes and it is so depressing and discouraging but um not everyone is that religiously illiterate but but to your question about how we how we address it i think we need more reporters like i genuinely think we need more reporters uh not activists necessarily but just like men and women that are willing to tell the truth and nobody nobody seems to care about the truth anymore it's uh it's something that we talk about all the time, but we have these journalists working for the Washington Post and they're assigned to cover gender and they have she, her, or he, him in their bio, they, them. Um, they tweet about supporting, you know, Planned Parenthood if they cover abortion. Like there's just no pretense at impartiality anymore, but then, you know, democracy dies in darkness uh, on the tagline. And, and, and if you inquire about it, they'll pretend to be unbiased. Um, and then, you know, you have conservative reporters who, like me, where I'm, I'm very open about what I believe. I'm not pretending to be this unbiased Washington Post reporter. Uh, but I will I will try and, and report on the truth and I will try and expose the facts in that manner. And I think we need more people who are just being trained to do that and to call out nonsense when they see it. And, um, you know, I know that's not what journalism used to be, but I, I think we need more of that now because when someone says something absurd about a religion and prints it in one of the most important papers in the world and it goes unchallenged well that's how you change how people view that religion and that's scary what do you think um where do you come down on on sort of the the question of bias uh inevitability of bias so you just described yourself right as a conservative reporter um, in the sense that you, you're very upfront about your ideological commitments, do you think it's possible to have quote unquote unbiased reporting, or or more more like to the point question would be, do you think that we should strive towards a lack of bias in media, or do you think that we should strive towards um, a fair, accurate, and disclosure of various ideological commitments, um, so that the audience is sort of uh, or is there a role for both? In other words, is it necessary to have something of what the AP or the BBC used to be um, that is just at least attempting, even when they have their biases? I mean, believe me, yeah. the BBC has their biases, but um, especially with regard to Israel. But like it, it I, I guess I'm wondering what the standard in, in an ideal world. Um, do you think that to be a good reporter means striving for? To, to tamp down your own biases and, and straight report the straight news? Or do you think that that's a fool's game to begin with, that it's an impossibility and that what a good reporter ought to be doing is being very honest about his or her biases and then within those biases trying to be very meticulous about the facts of reporting? Well, there's definitely people that would be really mad at me for saying this. <laughs> I think in an ideal world, what we would have this unbiased, um, very straight news reporting of the facts that I just don't, that world, first of all, I don't think that world ever existed and I don't think it ever will. Uh, we always will be passionate about certain areas and when you're passionate about it, you feel strongly about it. And so you're gonna have bias creep in no matter how you do it. So I think that yes, uh, we should be more honest about 
our disclosures and these outlets should be more honest about donors and and their special interests and things like that. But the part of the reason I see it the way I do is that um, when I first started the Daily Caller, I was trying to get a lay of the land. I was new. I didn't really uh, know a ton about journalism. I was actually, I got into writing in the first place because of the Kavanaugh hearings. I was doing a different, I was in a different line of work and I was so radicalized by the media coverage of the Kavanaugh hearings that I thought, okay, I can't just sit on the sidelines anymore. I gotta, I gotta be part of this. And I had an editor at the Daily Caller who's a, a, a mentor, I guess you could say, of mine. I asked him, what is our role here? What should we be doing? Like, how should I be covering X news cycle? And he was like, look, there's a lot of outlets out there. They're all covering different stuff. We exist to fill the void that they all leave. And that's what we're doing here. And um, specifically in that moment, I believe it was covering hypocrisy and um, during COVID. And I was like, yes, that is what we're here to do because there is such a huge gap left by all the, these media outlets are not covering, you know, the, the hypocrisy of this governor when he says one thing and then does another or, or um, you know, when one woman accuses the president of, pres- of uh, sexual assault and her allegations get covered up the wazoo, but then another woman can, accuses another president of sexual assault and everyone ignores her and all the women's groups stay silent. Um, that's where our place we felt was to step in and cover those things. And so for me, that's kind of how I've been looking at it for the past, you know, whatever five years that I've been reporting is uh, there's a void. And so we got to fill that. And uh, I guess that's where we're at now. You know, it's so sad that that's how it has to be. But uh, I don't know. There just doesn't seem to be a lot of extra wiggle room right now. Maybe someday there will be, but for the conservative outlets right now, they're just chugging along, trying to tell the truth and fill the void. That's what we got to do. Yeah, it strikes me that that's an inherently defensive uh, position, right? That it's an inherently sort of ghettoized role for conservative media um, that relies upon, in some sense, reacting to what mainstream or legacy media is doing. And maybe that's what's necessary, um, as you say. Like maybe it's it's about filling a hole, but um, I think it's worth thinking about what the conception of of a good media might look like um, beyond reacting to what the bad one, <laughs> right? What, what the current one is, uh, especially in in light of, I mean, as you say, this has never been actually. I know there's a tendency to say like, well, it was better uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago. There were fewer news outlets, uh, but, and there wasn't as much opportunity for outsider voices to step in. On the other hand, they had at least partially this commitment to trying to be um, relatively middle of the road and covering things relatively unbiased, which are two things that are not the same, by the way, bias and middle of the road, right? Um, or unbiased and middle of the road. But right. uh they had these commitments that they at least attempted to keep oftentimes badly. Um, but it strikes me we're, we're moving more towards the 19th century sort of rough and tumble media where actually most papers were not just connected to a worldview. They were actually connected to a party. Um, so, I mean, it certainly has not always been the case that this this sort of Walter Cronkite uh, vision of media was was the only that the sort of ideal. Um 
but you know, maybe it's maybe it's all that that conservative media can do is fill is fill those holes. But it strikes me that that's kind of a that seems to me to be a position for people who assume they're always going to be the losers. Well, for sure. I mean, it's it's not a good position to be in. But I and I think you see. I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to cut conservative media short because you see amazing, enterprising reporting coming out of some of these conservative outlets, like Andrew Kerr. I think he's at the Free Beacon now. Um, he's done some of the most earth-shattering reporting uh, of anyone I know, and he's working at the Washington Free Beacon, which I think a lot of people would say is a conservative news outlet. Daily Caller has done amazing reporting, uh, groundbreaking, enterprising reporting. The Federalist. Um, Daily Signal, where I work, everybody's breaking news and leading in various ways, but we're still on defense because these these legacy media outlets are they are what people consider the news, and and you see that by how Republicans treat them. You know, the Republicans that you'd think they would want to go to a friendly outlet for their scoops, but no, they give their scoops to uh, Politico or they give their scoops to. Um, the New York Times or, you know, anonymously, they're, they're still giving their good stuff to these outlets because everybody knows they're still top dog. And I'm hard pressed to think of one outlet besides maybe the free press, which I would say is left leaning, that does a good job of being unbiased or middle of the road, as we were saying. Um, but that's one of the only ones that I can think of that maybe not even maybe maybe some for maybe. Um, but again, you know, they have obvious tilts and uh, there there isn't really any middle of the road outlet that can set the standard there. So, yeah, I do think we are on defense. On, uh, but <laughs> I'm going to give us a little plug here. Kudos to us. We're still fighting a good fight when, when we're so deep in the trenches. It's it's hard, you know, there's it's hard to break out of there. It's hard to um, get it's hard to even get these mainstream outlets to acknowledge our reporting. Uh, I think I reported something recently that the New York Times picked up and I was shocked, you know, and then they have to say, you know, the conservative news outlet, the Daily Signal reported. Um, I love it when they have to do that. But it's rare, you know, they they don't want to do it. So anyways, I'm just saying the same thing over and over, yeah. but we're filling the void. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. I, of course, I wasn't disparaging the the really good reporting work, not just at uh, the Daily Signal, not just your reporting, but we had Aaron Sibarium on. I'm, I know I'm really, I think it's a great thing that uh, YAF has, has created this Dow Prize, which is a $100,000 prize for for good reporting. I think the idea is to, to go it. up against the Pulitzer um, and, and create some incentives for good reporting and, and improving. So they they gave that that peak award, um, the biggest of the awards of the night to Matt Taibbi, who is by no means a conservative, but did good right. reporting on the Twitter files and recognition of that. Right. So um, I, I do think that there, there, it's worth thinking about what the, what our framework is or what our end goal is. Right. And, and as, as conservatives in a more abstract way. And that's, that's what I, I guess I wonder um, where, at what point, if there ever will be, there'll be a tipping point. And it certainly seems like independent media generally, including, but not, uh, they're kind of overlapping, but not identical spheres, right? Independent and conservative media. Right. Um, at what point that, that, uh, you know, record low trust, um, in media actually invests new outlets and, uh, you know, people who are doing serious real reporting with the kind of 
institutional power uh, that even though brittle is still matters so much. You just said, right. Right. When like, you know, you, it's hard to get your reporting picked up in the New York times, but then when, you know, it's a cause for celebration when they do, um, you know, that's, that's always going to be the fact that Republican politicians are always going to want to, which is DeSantis is kind of think the one exception yeah. um, as a very conscious media choice, like to give exclusives and uh, coverage to attempt to like force, but unfortunately DeSantis's position in the primary I think forces it because otherwise if he were, if he were, let's say for whatever, like a uh, strange reason, Trump wasn't running again. DeSantis was the, the leading Republican candidate. It would force, right. If a leading Republican candidate were to only give interviews and exclusives to independent and conservative media, it would force the legacy outlets to start reporting right on. Yeah on those outlets in a way that almost nothing else would. Cause if they want to see what the Republican candidate said and, you know, crap all over it, they still would have to go to these outlets and, and the access that they continue to have um, is, is what grants them a certain amount of power and legitimacy, even as every long-term poll shows that, um, you know, that Americans trust them less and less, but right. that's a, that's a, a much longer topic. Um, for another day, uh, Mary Margaret Olihan uh, of the Daily Signal. She's a fellow with us uh, at IW. Thank you so much for joining High Noon today. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to our listeners. High Noon with Inez Stepman is a production of the Independent Women's Forum. As always, you can send comments and questions to Inez.Stepman at IWF.org. Please help us out by hitting the subscribe button and leaving us a comment or review on Apple Podcasts, Acast, Google Play, YouTube, or IWF.org. Be brave, and we'll see you next time on High Noon.